Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Gary Green. Gary Green is a past president of both the Crow's Nest Officers Club and the Crow's Nest Military Artifacts Association, which jointly administer the Crow's Nest National Historic Site of Canada. He has written journal articles on the Crow's Nest and has contributed to books on the role of St. John's and the Royal Canadian Navy in the Battle of the Atlantic, 1939-1945. Gary and his wife Ruth, collections manager for the Crow's Nest Military Artifacts Association, conduct research in both national and provincial archives and museums. Gary also created and conducts a story walk based on the experience of the first World War II German POW to escape from a detention facility in St. John's. Gary, welcome to the show. Good morning. It is lovely to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. So, uh, the crow's nest. I know some people listening will certainly know the crow's nest, but some people might not. Uh, Can you, how did the crow's nest start? Or what is the crow's nest? The Crow's Nest is a a national uh, historic site, as you know, and it is uh, the officers' club from World War II. Uh, During uh, the Second World War, uh, convoys were leaving uh, St. John's. Some convoys left St. John's, others left Halifax, and uh, they were escorted across the Atlantic by a group known as the Newfoundland Escort Force, a force led by the Royal Canadian Navy. And um, they were looking for a place where the officers of both the merchant ships and the naval ships could get together and have, uh, I guess, a form of debriefing after the the trips or get to know each other before they went to sea. And uh, so uh, Sir Leonard Outerbridge owned a warehouse downtown, and uh, when the Navy was looking for a place, uh, it it was volunteered, basically, and uh, uh, that started a long, long uh, uh, legacy, I guess, if you will, for St. John's and uh, and the Royal Canadian Navy to this day. Mm. So now if I'm standing outside the crow's nest, uh, what do I see? And And then when I go in, what do I see once I'm inside there? Well, if you were approaching from Water Street, uh, the Crow's Nest, by the way, is, is physically located halfway between Duckworth Street and Water Street on the east side of uh, the uh, National War Memorial. And so if you're approaching from, uh, from the east, uh, you're going to see uh, a red brick building with a, um, what looks like an antenna sticking out of the top. And uh, in reality, it is the upper portion of a uh, periscope from U-190, the last uh, uh, U-boat to sink a Canadian warship uh, during the Second World War. And um, you're going to climb up from Water Street 59 steps uh, in uh, a little alleyway, uh, which actually is still, I think, a road of St. John's. And um, it... um, once you get inside, you're going to find the room filled with World War II, uh, what is known as gun shield art, and badges and plaques from ships basically uh, around the world. Yeah. So the, the club itself is, is two levels. There's a, a, a kind of a bar on the upper level and then a meeting room or dining room space on the, on the, the lower level. Yeah. And the upper level is this room that is filled with all this gun shield art. Yes. So w- w- did that start off that way? What did the space look like during the during the war years? Uh, 
the, it looked pretty much as it is now, mm-hmm. with some um, minor changes. Um, the top floor was originally used as a cheese storage room in <laughs> not, um, not in the warehouse. Interesting, yeah. And uh, the fireplace in the in the room was used to uh, supposedly to keep the cheese from freezing during the winter. Was what uh, we were been told, and um, and uh, that was the, the magic selling point at the time. That you know, a club with a working fireplace, and that was uh, the snapper. But um, what happened on opening night? of the place in January of 1942 was that uh, some bright young fellows started to carve their uh, uh, ship's names in uh, in the decking uh, at the uh, the crow's nest in the ceiling and so on. And uh, Captain Mingi, who was uh, the founder of the crow's nest, if you will, the, the officer in charge of uh, morale and life at sea and so on, uh, he said, hold on, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, this is an oftener's club. It's not going to be used as uh, uh, full of graffiti and so on. And then he took a second thought and thought, well, you know, heck, they're going to do something here anyway. We're not going to keep it as a pristine place. So they said you can bring something in from your ship, and you can you know, have your momentum. You can put your mark on the place that way. And so a group from a ship called with Asquin ran back and took off the side of uh, the the uh, bulkhead in the wardroom, the officers' uh, quarters on board the ship, um, a painting, brought that in and laid it against uh, the wall, and um, subsequently the people on board the ship said, mm, "We'd kind of like to have our painting back, and um, well, we can't take it out of the crow's nest, so let's paint another one," and. Um, through a long discussion between an artist on board and the captain, and of course the captain won the argument, um, he directed the young fellow to paint a replica on the side of the gun's uh, shield on the forward part of the corvette, which he did. Um, And then that tradition just went boom. And so people started painting uh, pictures to tell something about the ship to put in the crow's nest, and then subsequently painting replicas of that on the ships um, as part of the decoration. And um, that tradition spread throughout the Newfoundland Escort Force, uh, and to this day in the Royal Canadian Navy, if you look at the forward guns on the corvettes, or not the corvettes, the frigates that they are today, uh, you will notice there are cartoons on the back uh, edge of it. And uh, those cartoons also appear in the modern collection at uh, at the Crow's Nest as well. So the place is filled uh, with all of these cartoon-like drawings mm. on two feet by two feet pieces of yeah. plywood, masonite, uh, some are on paper uh, and framed. And each one of those tells a story about the ship. Uh, people come in and sometimes just think, of, you know, it's a cartoon of Popeye or something, but that particular um, painting uh, tells a unique story, perhaps about sinking of a U-boat or uh, some rescue they did at sea or yeah. something like that. And some of them are quite humorous as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah. Like yeah. The, the, the one that you mentioned, the one that sort of got the ball rolling, the Wataskowin, yeah. um, can you describe that piece of, uh, that well, piece of art? Right. Well, <laughs> the, the, the Wataskowin is a picture of a rather uh, um, uh, leggy uh, lady, shall we say. <laughs> this kind of pin-up art. Uh, absolutely, pin up, yeah. absolutely. And you have to remember that the 
um, officers of the day, uh, most of them were volunteers. I mean, they were, the Canadian Navy at, at the start of World War II had only about 2,000 people in it yeah. um, and 13 ships or so, and some of those were little small harbor craft. By the end of the war, there were over 100,000 in the Navy, and we had something like 400 ships. So, uh, you know, it's a very rapid expansion, and they just brought in all these bright young fellows. So, yeah, they were into the cartoons of the day and the, and the pinup art of the 1940s. Yeah. So you have to put that in your head. And so there is this lady sitting in a puddle of water that looks like a map of Newfoundland. And underneath is marked NEF, which stands for Newfoundland Escort Force, May uh, 1941, which is when the Escort Force was established, first arrived in St. John's, basically on the 24th of May weekend in 1941. And so she is a queen. She's sitting uh, with her, her you know, uh, bum in the water and the <laughs> um, knees pointed up and uh, a crown on her head and so on. And uh, uh, where she came from is that um, people had trouble saying Wadaskwin. It was a tongue, bit of a tongue twister yes, for people. Yeah. It wasn't a common name. And so, like a lot of other ships with complicated names, she got um, a nickname, and which was known as the Wet Ass Queen. And so uh, that was it. So there she is, sitting in her puddle of water. Yeah. And um, and it has gone on. And, and um, the chap who painted the version that appears on the ship actually never ever saw the original. Um, he arrived at the ship after uh, it had gone to the crow's nest, and. Um, he was not allowed in the crow's nest because he wasn't an officer. And uh, so he had to go by verbal descriptions from other people. And so when you see it, uh, pictures of the Wadaskwin, you're going to see it as a, a queen of hearts. Uh, okay. He painted her as a queen uh, of hearts on a playing card. Yeah. And so, yeah, and, and I very fortunately, a few years ago, uh, the man was in his 90s at the time, but I did manage to talk to Bernie Forbes, who was the, the artist who painted it on the, uh, the side of the ship. And it was just, uh, just an amazing uh, uh, conversation to have with the man. So you have all this amazing uh, gun shield art, a lot of it from that war period, and then a, a, a whole bunch of other kinds of artifacts as well. You, you uh, alluded to this periscope that's yes. in, in the corner, um, which is quite an, an astonishing piece of equipment to have in, a, in an establishment mm. like that. Yeah, Sure. Yeah, in, in, uh, at the end of the war, uh, some ships were at sea, uh, including a ship, uh, a U-boat, one, U-190, and uh, they surrendered off uh, the coast of uh, Newfoundland. And they were, uh, Canada had designated two places for captured warships to be brought into the country. One was Bay Bulls, and uh, even though we weren't, part of Canada at that point in time, and the other was over in uh, Shelburne, Nova Scotia. And uh, so those were the two designated uh, spots. And so in the U-90 came, uh, U-190 came to um, Babel's. Uh, she was basically stripped uh, of some uh, things at that point in time, and uh, then went on uh, subsequently to Halifax, where she was further... Um, Disassembled. Disassembled or, yeah, sure, a, a yeah. couple of years later. Right, yeah. And, uh, and sunk as part of an exercise to um, 
practice gunnery, believe it or not. I mean, today it would be a... So she was used for target practice. Yeah, she was used for target practice on Trafalgar Day in, I think, 1947. And so they... One of the things they took off her was this periscope. Mm-hmm. Um, she had two, and they took off one. And it lay for some time in uh, in a warehouse in uh, Halifax. And uh, in the 1960s, uh, the guys were sort of saying, gee whiz, you know, we'd love to have a periscope. And uh, just happened to be somebody from the Navy, uh, from uh, Halifax there at the time, and said... Uh, maybe I can help you there. <laughs> and the next thing you know, shortly thereafter, a Canadian warship arrived in St. John's Harbor uh, with a periscope uh, on her deck. Yeah. And uh, then uh, a local trucking company, uh, Summers, I believe, truck local, uh, managed to have a crane that was high enough to, to hoist it up to the top, hoist of, the it up to the yeah. top of the building. and. Yeah. In it went. And, and the rest uh, is history. Yeah, yeah and, and it's, it's, it's fairly rare. As best we can find from our research, there are eight uh, periscopes above water in the world, and uh, U-boats carry two kinds of periscopes, as do modern um, submarines. One's an attack scope and one is a sky scope. And this is a sky scope, which means it has a broad field of view, and you can look around and adjust it to look up at the sky or look at the horizon. And... Um, as far as we know, it's one of five to exist in the world above water. Hmm. So you have this rather impressive collection of, of artifacts. How, how many artifacts do you, roughly would you have in the collection? Oh, um, uh, I'm going to say there are certain should be probably a well over a thousand artifacts yeah. In, yeah. in the collection. So what what challenges does that present to you as an organization? Well, it, it certainly presents a. Um, uh, a cataloging, a preservation challenge, um, tracking down some of the um, uh, provenance of each of the pieces, and uh, the, the preservation is is critical yeah. um, for the place. Yeah, because it is both a museum and a functioning club. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. It does function today as a as a club, yeah. um, and uh, there are officers. Uh, although we've opened it to um, civilian. Uh, people in the last uh, number of years, but uh, yeah, it has a membership uh, all around the world, roughly 600 members, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of naval people who just want to keep the place uh, going, yeah. and so take out a membership so that uh, the roof uh, stays on and the heat bills get paid and all of that sort of stuff. And you've just gone through a period of renovation and and, and work in the building. Can you can you describe that? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say restoration more than renovation. Yeah. Um, we had uh, several years ago. We had a professional conservator come in and do an assessment of the place. And one of the things that uh, she identified was that um, the environment for the artifacts needed to be stabilized. And uh, the uh, material that was there was the old tin test of World War II and stuff uh, that it was all put together with. And it, it was literally crumbling. Right. And we had artifacts falling off the walls yeah. and that sort of stuff because it was, it was uh, deteriorating badly. So that tin test, it's almost like a compressed uh, cardboard. Uh, cardboard, yeah. 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 It, it, it is. So, uh, again, under the guidance of uh, suggestions of the conservators, we removed all of that, uh, went back and made sure that everything was up to, up to code, you know, fire retardant, uh, um, 
insulation and so on, proper backing for the walls, a fire-resistant wall uh, covering and so on, you know, whatever we could to stabilize the envelope uh, in which the artifacts are uh, are kept. So all the artifacts had to come off the walls? Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and be put in storage. And, uh, um, and then what we did... Uh, because what had happened over the years, things had gone on in pretty much a haphazard way. As I indicated, uh, ships that arrived in St. John's, it was a big deal to get something from a ship on the walls of the Crow's Nest. It's a world-famous place. And uh, so uh, we collected artifacts post-war, a lot of Cold War stuff from American ships that were in and stuff. But it was all sort of like, oh, there's a bare spot, and it got, up, nailed, yeah. To, yeah, it got yeah. nailed to the wall or screwed to the wall or whatever. Um, and so since we decided that we were, um, uh, by that point in time, we had received the National Historic Site um, designation, or were in the process of, ge- of getting it, it was, it was uh, close. And so we decided the thing to do was put it back. We had some photographs of closing day in the club in 1945 at the end of the war. And so we, when things went back, we, we put things back where they were, according to the photographs at the end of the war. Uh, so what you see now when you come in is uh, largely how the room looked um, at the close of the war. Um, there are some post-war um, things in there as well, but they're arranged a little differently. They, they weren't, they're not so intermixed as they once were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you can get a fairly good idea of what the place was like. In uh, in forty five, what's the story about the rope that's uh, wound around one of the posts? The um, the story was the place is had uh, is a small place, and um, it always had a problem with fire code. Right, <laughs> and that there are far more people who want to be in the place than than not. The stairs that exist today, as the entrance steps uh, that go up the little laneway, Harding's Lane, um, weren't there. The original 459 steps went up the outside east wall, and you came in through um, essentially a window turned into a door. And uh, so the fire department said, you know, you guys are, you know, in trouble here. So right. Speak, yeah. right? <laughs> and so the guys, uh, remember, there were all these young fellows in their teens and their 20s and stuff, turned around and said, um, if we put in another fire escape, can we uh, up our code and up the room allotment? And they said, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, the boys simply went and got a piece of uh, hemp rope uh, long enough to reach down to Water Street, four stories high, the crow's nest on top of a four-story building, uh, knotted it at, say, two-foot <laughs> intervals, and uh, proceeded to wrap it around one of the posts and uh, tied it to that post so they could throw out the window, you know, beat out the window, Throw the rope out, and down they go. Yeah, yeah. I have this vision of all these inebriated uh, young officers. Uh, uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it must have been quite the spot uh, in its day. I mean, it's it's it, today. It's this amazing collection of, of artifacts, but it it really must have had an incredible function during during the years of the of the North Atlantic convoys. Uh, absolutely, um, people didn't talk about, didn't know about post-traumatic stress disorder. People talk about you know, being shell-shocked and that, right. that yeah. sort of thing, but nobody um, uh, understood the psychological implications of what was happening in battle and stuff. 
And Mingi, um, who later went on to be an admiral uh, within the Canadian Navy, uh, Mingi was very, you know, uh, um, visionary, I guess is what it was. And he saw a place where people, where people needed to be able to get together and small, tell stories. I mean, the place was basically built for storytelling. Right. Right? And um, we all know that, you know, life revolves around stories. People get together and they tell stories That's, that our culture is around. That's a human thing, yeah. That's absolutely. a human thing. Yeah. People sit and get together and how is it going? And then people just have their coffee and tell stories to one another back and forth. And so that was what Mingi wanted to have happen. He wanted people to be able to tell their stories among themselves and among people who understood what was happening. You know, you were out there in the battle, I was out there in the battle, maybe not the same battle, but a lot of the same gut-wrenching things were happening. We saw a lot of the same horror uh, and that sort of stuff. And so it was, I think it's amazing. It's a place built for storytelling. Mm. And uh, uh, it's um, uh, a vital function. And, and people after the war... You read um, some of the post-war writings of people, and they talk about the crow's nest and the fact that they've been in Sydney, Australia, and you know, tied up somewhere and gone into a local facility and met some other fellow who recognized they were from a of a you know a warship and sort of chatting and you know, how's the crow's nest doing and stuff, and they get you know yeah. free. It's just an amazing and thing. And the, the club still serves a, a social function. Like It, it does. still has uh, dinners and, and uh, contemporary events? Oh, it, it does. And uh, the dinner schedule essentially revolves around history. And uh, what we try and do is, throughout the year, look at um, significant events, either World War II mostly, but sometimes other significant historical events. And, uh, for example, a ceiling disaster. Hmm. Uh, those sorts of things. And we try to hold dinners as close as we can to significant anniversaries, usually two a month, uh, and then have a speaker or um, some other aspect, maybe a a short video clip or something or other like that. So the dinner revolves around commemorating these sorts of uh, historic events. And... um, and absolutely fascinating. Sometimes, you know, you have the the grandson of, you know, somebody who was in the battle, for argument's sake, arrive or thinking like that. You know, talking about anniversaries, I know the building itself uh, sits on the site of a very historic pub uh, yes. in St. John's, the ship, the, the original ship, which dates yeah. back to the 1700s. Yeah. And and Admiral Nelson, it, it is said, there. drank at that, at that location. And as did Benedict Arnold uh, of American Revolutionary fame. Yeah. As did uh, James Cook, as did William Bly of Mutiny on the Bounty. <laughs> so it's quite the the maritime history there. Absolutely, right? yeah. and so you had a, you had an anniversary event then around the the anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar. Then for, oh, for we, we, yeah. every two years, yeah. there is um, in, within the Navy. There's a tradition of something called a mess dinner. It's a formal dinner with everybody gets dressed up in their tuxedos and mess kits and so on. And uh, there's a a set pattern to, as to how you go through the dinner. Well, of those, there is a special one called a Trafalgar mess dinner, and uh, it commemorates uh, the Battle of Trafalgar, and we go through um, that with its special ceremonies and stuff, and people seem to in, uh, enjoy it uh, a lot. And we do it every two years on the, uh, in October uh, and the Battle of... Uh, now, I, I know you know the story of, of Nelson's Brandy. 
Yes. <laughs> Can you tell me that story? Well, essentially what happened was Nelson... Uh, in the Battle of Trafalgar, died. Yes, of course. Yeah. It was a victory for uh, for the Royal Navy, but they had lost uh, Nelson in that, and um, so they had to get him home. And uh, the typical thing you did to somebody who died at sea was literally chucked him overboard if it was in the heat of battle, or gave him a little more formal uh, funeral at sea after a battle. But Nelson was too important. But for he that. was too important. He yeah. was a national icon, and so they took a, a cask and folded him over and tucked him inside the brandy uh, and poured and topped him up with brandy and shipped <laughs> him, him home, home pickled yeah. him, <laughs> and uh, he arrived home several weeks later. Yeah. yeah. And then there's this legend that grew up that uh, that sailors had tapped the admiral, that they had tapped this barrel and drank some of this brandy Absolutely. that he had been stewing in for a while. Absolutely. Supposedly it was done with a, a, a straw of some sort. And so, and, uh, you know, and so hence the old saying, you know, he'll drink, you know, he'll he, you know, drink it off Nelson, right? <laughs> so if you were that desperate for a drink, you'd, you'd uh, drink it off Nelson. And do you think this is true, or is this one of these kind of legends that, that has attached itself? You know, it's impossible to tell, I guess. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, right? <laughs> but it's, it makes for a great story. Yeah, yeah. but you know, you, you talk about legends, and I'll just give you some idea of how important the crow's nest is um, in, in legends for people. Sure. Uh, the, the Sir Percy Niles, who was the head of the... Uh, Royal Navy during the Second World War said that the crow's nest is the repository of the legends and lore of the brave men who saved not only Britain, but perhaps freedom itself. So mm. that's the esteem in which the place is, is held in, in, naval, uh, in naval history. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's pretty important to keep the stories alive, not just to preserve the space. The but space, the, yeah, the, but the to keep the stories And that tradition of storytelling in the space. Yeah, yeah. and the tradition of storytelling. So when people come for a tour, which we do very gladly for groups and stuff, um, yeah, I mean, besides pointing things out, we tell the stories. Mm-hmm. And hopefully uh, people will come to appreciate, you know, what went on here. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's difficult looking around St. John's of today in a peaceful little place that it is. Um, and realize that it was the front line of battle right. in World War Two. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, y- you know, I mean, this was this was it when people went back to Halifax. Halifax was the main uh, Canadian port, but separate country. We were the main port for the the, the transatlantic transport. And so, when people got battle fatigued in St. John's, they were sent to the back lines in back to Halifax, you know, for a bit of R&R, and, uh, and then brought forward again, yeah. you know, and so... So if, if people are, are in St. John's and they want to see the crow's nest, it is open to the public at certain hours. How, do, how would one go about visiting? Yeah. If, if, we, we certainly do formal tours, so to speak, and uh, if one goes on the web and looks for the crow's nest uh, website... Uh, there's um, an email address there as well as the phone number for the club, and you can certainly call and arrange to have uh, a tour. So we do things, for example, for high school students who are studying World War II as part of their world history uh, course and so on. So we do things for that. We do things for visiting ships. We do uh, stuff for cadet groups and so on. 
Um, but if somebody wanted to drop by and have a look-see, uh, the hours of operation are posted, uh, usually 4.30 to about 7 in the evening, uh, that people can come by and have a look um, and identify themselves as a visitor to, uh, to the staff, and they'll be happy to help. And you don't have to be an officer to become a member now. You no, can. you don't. And uh, it, it, uh, it's people who are interested in the history and want to preserve um, you know, Newfoundland's uh, history and the history of the Navy and so on. Those are uh, the people who come in and get involved these days. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Well, I want to I want to thank you for for coming in. It's been great to to chat about this. I mean, I feel we we could probably go on for hours and hours just about crow's nest yeah. stories. So, you know, absolutely. It's uh, it's a, it is a remarkable remarkable place. So, thank you again, Gary, for coming in. Uh, we're talking with Gary Green, past president of both the Crow's Nest Officer Club and the Crow's Nest uh, Military Artifacts Association. I'm Dale Jarvis, and our production assistant is Tara Barrett. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5, in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Thanks for listening.